0: 26 miles is an important number. You know why? It's the length of a marathon. Some of you know that. But if you've ever encountered someone who's run a marathon, you know it's not 26 miles. It's 26.2 miles. And they're very clear about that because it's that last miles. That makes or breaks you. It's the hardest part of the race. Now, I have no idea about that because I've never run a marathon. I never plan on running a marathon. It is a life goal of mine to die without running a marathon, and I'm crushing it. But (laughs) preach. I've never been much for running. I have asthma, and it doesn't impede me from running, but it's been a great excuse not to run. And it wasn't until I was 32, which is four years ago, uh, that I finally ran three miles without stopping or walking along the way. Yes, I know, impressive feet. Here's the context. Julia was pregnant with our first daughter, Ansley. And we were in the the beginning of planting this church. We didn't have services. We didn't have anyone. And I was feeling really stressed out, like nothing was working. Nothing was going to happen. And we were living in this building at the time that had a gym. And I said, well, maybe I'll go try this running thing. And so I went down there. And I'm like, I'm going to run three miles without stopping. And I had, I don't know, the last time I ran, (laughs) but I'm going to run, and I'm, I'm not going to stop. Now, I don't know about you, but that first two minutes of running, I always think to myself, I'm not made for this. Uh, but then you break through that first two minutes, you know, and then the rest is terrible too. And so I have to find ways to motivate myself and I do it in the most peculiar way. Like I would say to myself, if you can't run for just three miles without stopping, there's no way you're gonna plant a church, you know? I would say, I said to myself, you know, if you can't run for three miles what kind of father are you going to be? How could you bring a daughter into the world when you can't even run three miles? And whatever it took, I just said it to myself, and I made it, people. And I tell you, I have seen glory. You know, I, I went back upstairs, and I, I went out on my patio. We were living at the 21st floor at the time, and I felt like I could do anything in the world if I can run three miles. God can get a church going. I was so filled with enthusiasm. Now, it might have just been a runner's high, Or it might have been that there is something about enduring and making it that resounds in the human soul. You see, I know many of you didn't come here today to hear about my running adventures. That would be a very boring morning. We're here because we're studying and walking through the book of Hebrews, or you're here because you're wondering about this Christian faith, if God really exists, let alone is Jesus his son. And in our passage today... We're reading a part of a letter that a pastor wrote to a church long ago, urban Christians who are in the throes of an existential crisis. You see, pursuing faith, being people who walk in the way of Jesus, it had not made their lives any easier. If anything, it had made their lives more difficult. They were beginning to be ostracized in society. And so in this part of the letter, the author says, you have need of endurance, You need to keep running this race before you. This is why I've written to you, you have need of endurance. Endurance is the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. It's to wake up and do it again and again and again and again, another day, another mile, another day, another mile. I love the way Leo Tolstoy puts it. He wrote, a man on a thousand mile walk has to forget his goal and say to himself every morning, today I'm going to cover 25 miles and then rest up and sleep. This is good wisdom for enduring the race of life. And yet, how do we apply it to our lives? And so this morning, as we walk through this difficult passage in Hebrews, here's the question I think we need to ask of this text. How do we endure well? How do we endure well? So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, uh, grab one of the great church Bibles on your way out and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have that. Everything's also gonna be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh or body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we see right out the gate is crucial to endurance. Sound belief. You see, the author has spent the past 10 chapters doing some heavy lifting in terms of theology, helping us understand who Jesus is and what he came to do and what Jesus has promised. And we've spent 13 sermons going through this content because what you believe about Jesus matters. See, if you don't have sound belief and sound theology, when push comes to shove and you're required to endure, it's going to be all the more difficult if you don't really understand who Jesus is, if you don't really trust what he said, if you don't even really know what promises are being held out for you. But what we also see in this passage is that we cannot endure alone, you can't dare do it alone. Faith does not take place in an isolated bubble. You need people around you, other people who are running this race with you. And this is non-negotiable. As the author says, we should not neglect to meet together. And this is such an important truth that we're gonna give it its own sermon next week. And so that we can really look at why this is so important to the Christian faith. But for today, I wanna focus on one instruction in particular. The author writes, let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. This is our call to endurance. As the author will say explicitly in verse 36, you have need of endurance. Endurance to the author of Hebrews means holding fast to our hope. In other words, your grip on hope should be so tight that your, your knuckles are turning white. Your hope, your hope in what God has promised for his people and not just for his people, but has promised for you should never be compromised. At no cost should you let go. We're, we're not just called to hold on. We're called to hold on without wavering because he who promised is faithful. But this, this is such a tall order How do we endure in this way without wavering? Here's the first thing you need to know if you're going to endure. You must know the cost if you choose not to endure. If you want to endure, you have to weigh the cost of failing to endure. Look at verses 26 through 31. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are very uncomfortable verses. If you're a guest with us this morning, if you're just exploring the Christian faith, good morning, welcome. (laughs) We'll get through this. But all of us, Christian, for a long time are just exploring. These are difficult and uncomfortable words. But what we must challenge ourselves to do is to accept the full picture of God offered here. God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of judgment. and You can't have one without the other. We don't get to throw out the challenging parts of God. Otherwise, in that case, we're reducing God down to someone manageable, someone customized and tailored to our own preferences. You see, when you reject parts of God, when you reduce God, that version of God can never actually challenge you because that God always agrees with you. If your vision of God only affirms everything you already think and feel, then you can be assured that you are not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here's why. God is free to be who God is. God is free to be who God is and God is free to do what God wants to do. Which means we don't get to tell the living God who he ought to be and how he ought to live. And it's terrifying because God has declared to us that there's severe consequences for sin. Severe consequences. After all, if there isn't a terrible outcome for sin, if there's no terrible outcome, what exactly did Jesus Christ die to save us from? The cross is not a solution to a minor problem. The cross is not a solution for sins if sins are really no big deal before the God of the universe. But here's the thing. It's tempting to get caught up in this part of the passage and miss the actual bigger issue that is even more difficult. A bigger challenge. The author writes this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Is that anybody's favorite memory verse? If we go on deliberately sinning, there's no forgiveness. This passage has caused a lot of confusion throughout church history. There was a season in the church where Christians would wait as long as possible, ideally until their deathbed, to be baptized because they were convinced that any sin after baptism was not forgiven. That's a stressful way to live. But what happened was they had missed uh, the forest for the trees. They missed the context because the deliberate sinning here is very specific. The author names it in the next verses. This is about a very specific type of deliberate sinning. This is about abandoning Jesus altogether and choosing not to endure in faith. The author expands the caution. Look at verse 29. This is the deliberate sinning he has in mind. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? I've been married to Julia coming up on 10 years next month uh, and our marriage has had... Very little struggle. There's been very few times so far where we've really felt like we had to endure one another. And if I'm honest, she probably would say something different. But but, (laughs) all in all, we've had a a beautiful marriage and every morning we wake up and we choose to say yes to one another yet again. And that's not to say we've never had challenges or fights. We've never had difficult seasons. But by and large, we've had a really good and, and beautiful marriage. We're grateful to be parents, and that requires endurance. But Ansley and Maggie, they truly are gifts. They've made our life different, but good. And now, I'm not talking about my marriage as if this is like something you should emulate or should live under that shadow. Um, Marriages look different, and everybody has different stories. I'm bringing this up to say, if tomorrow I decided I'm not going to endure anymore, what would that look like? If I said to Julia, for no warrant, I'm done. I am not going to endure as your husband anymore. I, it's over. And I left. I would be trampling her on the way out. If I looked at my little daughters in their beautiful blue eyes and I said, you are no longer my daughters. I'm done. I'm not going to endure anymore. The blood that binds us together as family, it's common. It's nothing. It's just blood. I'm not going to endure anymore. If I just left and was done with it. Now, saying these things makes me feel sick to my stomach in such a way that I ask Julia's permission, like I do with any illustration that involves her, but especially with this one, because it doesn't feel right to talk about my family in this way. It feels like a deep betrayal, and I can see by your faces some of you are uncomfortable. How could he even use this as an illustration? If I did this tomorrow, you would all be outraged. And you should be, and I hope you would be. And I have no intention to cease enduring as a husband or as a father. Even the thought of these things, like I said, feels like an affront, because if I intentionally stopped enduring in the way I described, it's, there's something outrageous about it. Is it not a greater insult to treat the Son of God this way? is it not a greater insult to treat the Son of God this way? Because here's what's being described, trampling the Son of God underfoot, profaning his blood. This is not the description of someone who's struggling with their faith, who has sincere questions and is wrestling if if Jesus really is who he claimed to be or they're wrestling with the faith they grew up in. This is not even describing someone who may have left faith because of doubt. This isn't describing the person who's left and come back, but still has challenging questions about what it means to follow Jesus. This is not who the author has in mind. This is the description of someone who deliberately and willingly and even antagonistically chooses to reject Jesus. They profane the blood of the covenant. In other words, they say the blood that he shed on the cross, there is nothing extraordinary about it, it was just common. It was just more blood spilt by the Romans. There's no saving power or forgiving power to it. The author says, in doing this, you're trampling the Son of God under your feet. And more severely, they outraged the spirit of grace. Now that sounds like a paradox. How can you outrage grace? How can you outrage grace? God is a God of grace, but his grace does not mean that he doesn't take great offense when you spurn his grace and throw it back in his face intentionally and say, I'm done with you. It's outrageous if someone who's received grace deliberately abandons it. Now, the bigger picture is this. The early church, they're facing pressure in society. They're losing status in society. Some of them have left homes. Some of them have been imprisoned and they can't live in society the way they used to. And so they're sincerely saying, is this really worth it? Because there's costs. And enduring is hard. Maybe we should walk away from it. And if they wanted to return to their status as regular members of society in a world that had been very antagonistic towards the early Christian movement, it wouldn't be enough just to walk away. They would have to repudiate their faith. They would have to deny Christ and renounce him publicly. And so the author warns them, weigh the cost. Weigh the cost. Because if you abandon Jesus, if you don't endure in faith, if you turn away from him, how could there be any forgiveness for sins? You're scorning and abandoning the one who made the one true sacrifice for sins. And the author, whether he's talking about a person in mind or whether he's just creating a scenario, we can't know. But he's saying this to sober them up, to sober us up. Because, and hear me on this, the thought of treating Jesus this way should make us feel sick to our stomachs. That's what should disturb us the most. You see, if you're more offended by the language, the severe language of a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire, punishment, vengeance, and judgment, if this is what offends you more than Christ being treated with such indignity, then you might need to reevaluate your heart. Because one is way more offensive than the other. And if you're going to endure, the author said, this is the principle. You have to weigh the cost of not enduring. You have to name what it is you would be doing exactly if you said, I'm done with Jesus altogether. But having warned the church, having sobered them up, the pastor, he wants to offer the church a proactive way of enduring. He offers them a discipline. We could call it a spiritual discipline that's going to help with endurance. Look at verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days, When after you were enlightened, so in other words, when after you started following Jesus, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. If you want to endure, you have to count the cost. But you also have to remember, this is a discipline of recalling, of recollecting. Just as you need to train up progressively, so I'm told, uh, to run a marathon, you know, increase the distance and all of that. Your memory needs to be trained up as you follow Jesus. Your memory is this powerful gift from God. And so the author reminds the church, you've endured. You've made it this far. You have endured so remember what you've done. Remember what's taken place. Remember how you got to this point. You see, in the recent past, as I mentioned, they've, they've faced hard struggles. They've suffered. They've been publicly shamed. But they endured. Not only did they endure, the author says, you, you did it joyfully. If you're in a moment where you need to endure, where if you're in a moment where you feel like, everything in life is pushing down on you and Jesus doesn't seem to be real. He doesn't seem to be making a difference. You need to remember. But if you've never had to endure in that pressure again, the author is also saying you need the collective memory. You need to remember the others who've endured around you. Enduring requires memory. Remembering how you've endured, remembering how those around you have endured. As some of you know, a little over four years ago now, uh, my mentor and friend Isaac committed suicide. And he, he baptized me. He officiated my wedding, taught me to preach, gave me my first job in ministry, commissioned me to go and plant this church. And Isaac uh, was an incredible uh, person. He was an incredible communicator and visionary. He was gifted. He was hilarious. He was wonderful to be around. He had a, la- a laugh that could light up a room. Thoughtful and kind, but he was human. He was broken like the rest of us. And he had an ongoing affair which led to his resignation from our church, and a year later, he committed suicide. Before I say anything more, if you're having suicidal ideation, if you're having thoughts of suicide, I've been there, and I know how hard it can be to admit that you're having these thoughts. I know the shame that can be attached there. I know sometimes they start simple like, gosh, this world might be better without me. That's just a lie. This world will be worse without you. You matter. And so if you're having these thoughts and you've never talked about it because you feel ashamed or embarrassed, there's people in this community who are safe to talk to. You can talk to me. You can talk to my wife, Julia. You can talk to any of our pastors or community group leaders, there's helplines that you can Google and you can call, but don't bear that alone. You don't have to. You don't need to be ashamed. And and if that is what you're walking through, uh, we're going to walk with you. We're not going to try to fix you. We're just going to carry that weight with you to try to give you some room to breathe. Now, when Isaac committed suicide, I was devastated. I, I went numb for at least six months. And I didn't know how to make sense of it. And the last thing I wanted to do was pastor a church plant. This happened in the first month of our services. Because of what happened and how messy and how painful it was, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a pastor. I wasn't even sure that God was really good in that moment. Then came the grief. I thought of Isaac daily for at least a year. I still think of him all the time. And during that time, every time I preached, every single time, I would think, oh, that's how Isaac would say it. Or I would hear him speaking through me. I would hear mannerisms or or, or just turns of phrases that had just saturated me over my years with him. And honestly, I still hear his influence in me every time I preach. I can't escape. It's less painful now, but it still hurts. To cope in that first six months, I threw myself relentlessly into work which was easy to do in a young church plant. There's always things to be done. And I was doing that to avoid how I was feeling. I was, I was doing that to avoid the doubts I was experiencing about God. And I almost burnt out. I was falling apart at the seams. And so our leadership team, and I'll put this in air quotes, strongly recommended uh, that I take a month off, which was crazy. You don't take a month off in your first year of a church plant. That is not in any of the books. You don't even take a week off. That was the wrong perspective. So I took that time off and I finally was able to sit still and catch up with myself, to feel the grief, to name the pain, to to connect with Julia and hurt together. And during the season, I was living in what Walter Brueggemann calls the counter testimony. You see, there's Psalms of counter testimony where people of faith seriously question God. Where are you? Why aren't you listening? Are you really good? Are you really trustworthy? If you are, why is the world so dark still? Why is it so broken? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Why aren't you doing anything about anything? And I found relief in these Psalms. I might even say that these Psalms saved my faith in that season. Because I was asking, where was God? Why would God let this happen? Why would God let this happen? harm 5,500 people at a church, and I didn't even care about them. Why would God let this happen to his three kids, his wife? How can I still declare that God is good? And friends, this is a real part of faith. If this is where you are, don't hide it. You don't need to. When you go through these valleys, endurance becomes all the more necessary because it's tempting to throw in the towel and to stop. To say, the dark, it's too dark. I can't take another step forward. I can endure no longer. I can't trust God. I I can't even believe in Jesus. But here's how I managed to endure. This is what I learned in this season. I had to choose to distrust myself. I realize that sounds totally confusing. Because in our culture, we like to think, and we wouldn't really say this out loud, but I'll say it for you. We like to think, that we really have the best sense of reality. Everybody else is always a little off, but we really know better than anyone else. And when it comes to how you're doing, of course, you know what's best for you. I had to choose to distrust that instinct because I was living in the counter testimony. My experience, it was valid. It was real. It was necessary. But it also wasn't the final word on the matter. That's what I'm saying. I chose to distrust how powerful that experience can feel. It feels like it's never going to let up. And I chose to trust feebly most of the time the testimony around me. After all, there's Psalms right next to the Psalms of counter-testimony, Psalms of testimony that declare the goodness of God. And since i had never been through something like that before, I never had to endure in this way before, I paid attention to those around me. I looked at the other leaders who were also hurt by this, who I knew personally, who were enduring, who were pressing on. I I looked through church history and found examples of people enduring, who pressed on. And when I was so full of doubt and grief, I chose to trust the faith of those around me as sufficient for the day. I kept my eyes on the people who kept saying yes to Jesus even amidst their own hardships. And as I kept my eyes on them, I was able to find the courage to say yes to Jesus even in an oppressive cloud of grief, doubt, and depression. You see, the discipline of remembrance, of remembering was key for me. It helped me endure and I'm glad I did. I'm I'm glad I'm, I'm here. I'm glad to be a pastor of this church and I can't escape from that part of our story as as a body of Christ, but I also learned that I'm not really your shepherd, Christ is. I'm just a steward. But I struggled during that time, terribly so. And here's the truth. Endurance is rarely pretty. It can be downright ugly. You see, Christians, we fall short sometimes. We paint endurance like it means putting on a positive attitude. Have you ever endured in that way? Well, everything's fine When uh, Julianne Kopeck was 17, her plane came apart midair over Peru. And her seat was dislodged from the plane. And she plunged 10,000 feet in the air while still strapped to her seat into the jungle. And she was the only survivor. Everyone else in the plane died, including her. But she woke up and she was still able to walk. She had a broken collarbone, some major cuts. But by and large, she was alive. And her parents were zoologists, and so she knew to find the river and to follow its stream, and that that might take her to civilization or to a tribe. And for 10 days, she walked and she swam without food. She endured. And if you read her memoir, she talks about every morning she'd wake up and have to pull the maggots out of her wounds. There was nothing pretty about her endurance. And there still isn't. She talks very openly about this now as an adult woman. She says, I'm still enduring today. I'm still enduring through this trauma. There's nothing pretty about endurance. You may be facing severe loss, trauma, or immense pain. You might be having a downright depressing year, a difficult week, a hopeless moment. Whatever you're facing, whatever is pressing down against your faith that makes you wonder, where is God? Is it still worth pursuing this Jesus? Your endurance does not have to be pretty. Your endurance, it might involve snot and tears, heartache and disappointment, or even immense suffering, broken dreams and dashed hopes. Enduring may very well knock the wind out of you and bring you right to your knees in dismay, wondering if you can make it another day. That's why we, we need to remember to remember how we've endured up until this point and how others have too. But this discipline of remembering needs to be coupled with repetition. Remember and repeat, remember and repeat, remember and repeat. The philosopher Kierkegaard wrote, that which is repeated has been. Otherwise it could not be repeated. But the very fact that it has been makes the repetition into something new. Remembering how you have endured means that you can endure again, but as you endure again, it will be new, it'll be different, it'll still be challenging, but you know because you remember that you've done it so you can repeat it. It's not a dull or monotonous grit your teeth and grin and bear it, but a posture of God has shown himself faithful even if I don't understand. And he'll be faithful again. Because we do not know a God who is unfaithful. That God does not exist according to the Christian scriptures. We do not know a God who's unfaithful. And as the author exhorted us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. If you want to endure them, you need to count the cost of not enduring. You need to embrace this discipline of remembering and repeating in those challenges. But you also need to know what you're enduring for. And that's far more important than anything I've said. This is how the author concludes in verses 35 through 39. Therefore, so in light of all of this, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Endurance, it needs to be backed up by something bigger. You see, cultural endurance is about your own strength, buckling down, achieving your goals. But Christian endurance is about Christ's strength. Cultural endurance is personal resolve. I'm going to get there. Christian endurance is about hope. Cultural endurance is about optimism, thinking that the best will happen. But Christian endurance is about promise, knowing that God keeps them. Cultural endurance is about temporary gain, but Christian endurance is about eternal inheritance, a reward. You see, we're invited to endure for hope, to endure for a better possession, to endure for a great reward. What is it? You are enduring for the Son of God who has trampled for you. The Son of God who loves you so much that he shed his blood for you so that he could be with you forever. You're enduring so you can join him in eternity. You're enduring for a world to come where all wrongs will finally be righted. And I know that that's hard to believe in. That these tragedies we experience, the suffering in the world, these giant question marks that loom over this world about how God is good and where is he? That will be resolved. God will wipe away every tear. He will right every wrong. He will show justice for injustice. He will meet a broken and hurting world and it will be good. As Paul writes, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can't even really talk about it. That's what we're enduring for. We might struggle to believe in it, but we can hope for it. I hope you get the difference. You don't have to have 100% certainty about this, but you can hope for it. And if you have that hope, endure in that hope. And as the author talks about this hope, he starts to feel more hopeful. Look at how he ends. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and persevere. But what about those of us right now, those of you in this room, who feel like you can't take another step? You don't have to. You don't have to. It's okay if you fall down. It's okay if you're done. It's okay if you're so tired and broken that you can't even muster up a prayer. You see, you don't have to endure in your own strength. You need to endure in the belief that even when you can't hold on to him, Christ is holding on to you. And if you can't even endure in that belief, I'll endure in it for you. And many people in this room will endure in it for you. And we will walk with you and wait with you and carry you and endure with you because you don't have to do it alone. There's permission to fall apart. There is. We have to find the courage as a church, as the people of God, not to be afraid of the counter testimony, not to be afraid of people in our midst right now who are living there, who are wondering if God even exists, if God is even good, if God is even trustworthy. You don't work through that quickly. You don't. And everything I've said, you might not be ready for it. and, And that's fine. Come back to it another day, maybe. Stay with us. Let us walk with you. You see, it's one thing to say, we need to count the cost. We need to have this discipline. We need to know what we're enduring for. But more importantly, we need to know who we're enduring for. We're enduring for Christ, the one who endured the cross for us joyfully the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. What was his joy? You. Christ endured an agony we cannot fathom so that we would never have to endure that. And as such, the author of Hebrews says he's paved a way. So when you come to his throne of grace, you receive mercy and help in your time of need, whatever your need is. Christ endures for you. And he endures with you. So if you're too weak to stand up, that's okay. Christ is there.